Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm here with my usual partners in crime, Todd Pruitt and Amy Bird. And it's that time of the year when we gather around Todd to offer some rich tea and sympathy and some therapy because he's just returned (laughs) from the PCA General Assembly and, as usual, is is a little bit sad. (laughs) We thought we'd we'd explore the reasons for Todd's little bit of sadness and see if we can encourage him. Let let me clarify. I'm I'm not sad. I will say this: when I left for General Assembly, I was sad. I was concerned about some things. An email had been made public that kind of made the rounds among the so-called progressives in our denomination, and it really shed the light on some of the shenanigans going on and how and well organized they are. How well organized <laughs> they are. The conservatives, and how poorly yes. organized conservatives are. And knowing the weight of some of the things that were coming before us in terms of overtures, I was concerned and a little down. By the end of the week, I was not down. I was feeling rather encouraged. Not that everything went the way that I would have hoped it would have gone. There were signs that that left me encouraged, largely, for the most part. Still concerned, but more encouraged than I was at the beginning of that week. Anything yeah. in particular that yeah, encouraged, encouraged you? Well, I'm glad not. you asked. Well, so there were a couple of things that were pretty important. So, for instance, there were two overtures. There were 25 overtures this, this year that made it through the overtures committee and came to the floor. A number of them were, were fairly non-controversial things, dealing with certain boundaries of presbyteries and should another one be added, et cetera, et cetera. But there were also a few that were quite important. In fact, one of them, overture number seven it was, and then one that was kind of related to it, overture number 18, was, I believe, the most important thing we voted on uh, this week because what those two overtures together do is basically help to guard our Presbyterianism. In other words, those two overtures help to make sure that overtures that come to the assembly floor do so through channels that uphold our Presbyterianism. In other words, they come from churches and presbyteries rather than coming directly from committees. Now, if you have experience in Presbyterianism, you know why that's important. And if you know much about the history of denominations in the United States, you should have some idea why that's important because one of the factors in the downfall of some denominations, as they have become very liberal, has been the empowerment of strong central committees, really run by a handful of people, and they find that they can direct the the denomination that way. And that's why, like for instance, the Southern Baptist Convention, when it became uh, more and more liberal before the, the conservative resurgence, well, what you had there was you had a handful of committees and agencies that had become really controlled by the moderates and the liberals. And they were beginning to direct an entire denomination that was largely conservative. Now, that movement was able to be arrested. Uh, Similarly, in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, that movement was able to be arrested. But that's the exception rather than the rule. So I saw the vote on those two overtures as very, very 
key. In fact, I said in a, in a panel discussion Monday night, which was the day before General Assembly began, I said that the vote on, on overture number seven was going to be the most important vote for our denomination, and that if it went what I believed was the wrong way, we would look back at, at the 2017 General Assembly and the vote on Overture 7 as a bad turning point. Fortunately, that vote went the way I think it should have gone, helping to ensure that overtures come to the floor of the Assembly in the proper way, grassroots, ground level, working up from the churches and presbyteries. So that was important. I'm encouraged that it went that way. There was another moment that was interesting, and it had to do with the second commandment. One of the things that you hope to be able to to depend upon in Presbyterianism is a respect for the Ten Commandments, and one that is can be a little controversial along with the Fourth Commandment is the Second Commandment. How do we apply this no images? Now, we, we hopefully all agree that you don't introduce images of God into worship. There has been some disagreement, and I understand that there's some nuance to to other things, you know, like a Jesus storybook Bible in a children's Sunday school class or in a home. Is is that the same thing? And, and people who highly uh, respect and revere the second commandment and want to guard it are disagreed on some of those other things. But what you hope we all agree on is that the very fundamentals of the second commandment don't worship any images uh, would guard us from introducing those images into our services of worship. Well, I say all that to say a particular presbytery in our denomination, when they gathered for worship, they had a worship guide that had pictures of Jesus. Um, the committee that reviewed those notes took exception to that, but only a minority of that committee took exception to that. They wrote a minority report for the General Assembly to consider, basically saying bad, bad to the presbytery, but it had to be a minority report because the majority of the committee didn't have a problem with them using images of Jesus in their worship. Anyway, the minority report came to the floor. There were some strong attempts to have the minority report voted down. Several of the comments from the floor, I honestly still don't know what the guys meant. Um, But a lot of it revolved around, well, it doesn't bother me to have pictures of Jesus. Or we even had some good old-fashioned Nestorianism. Uh, Well, it's just a picture of Jesus' earthly nature, so therefore it's not an image of God. That's an awful thing. But the minority report was, was accepted. Now, the discouraging thing is it was accepted by a very narrow margin. You would hope in the Presbyterian Church in America, that we would all say, no, no images of any person of the Trinity in your worship. Again, the vote won. I'm happy for that. I'm discouraged that it wasn't overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So how did you feel about the outcome of the committee for the for the women's issues? Yeah. Well, obviously, that's one of the big ones there. I mean, mm-hmm. that was led to an entire day's and evening's discussion. Mm-hmm. Last year's General Assembly, of course, people know that the assembly voted to approve the formation of a study committee uh, that would write a study committee report on the role of women in ministry. Now, if you're not familiar with our polity, a study committee has no binding authority. It's not constitutional. It's just something that's written to help people think through. I'm typically just not in favor of study committees, period. I think they're a waste of time and money generally. I don't think they're inherently bad. I just think they're a bit of a waste of time and money. Um, Again, they have no constitutional authority. The problem is sometimes people treat them as though they do. In other words, if a study committee comes out endorsing your idea or your opinion, then you treat it like it's constitutional. If it endorses something that you don't like, then you act like it never happened. 
so that was part of the concern. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I read the report. I read the report several times. There are things in it that are good. What the committee writes about the nature of ordination, I think, is really good. It shows clearly that, that ordination cannot be separated from authority. This section on ordination is quite good. Some of the exegesis, I think, is done very well. The exegesis from uh, some of the relevant texts in Second Timothy, I think, are done very well. Um, I'm not crazy about the exegesis from 1 Corinthians, and that's where some of the some of the disagreements started coming in. But overall, the report itself is is not bad. I mean, there's no scholarly journal, obviously, that's going to be publishing it um, anytime soon. But it, it's fairly innocuous, although although it concludes with a series of recommendations, most of which I found profoundly unhelpful, and some of which. I would not be able to come to the session of my church and say, I think we need to seriously consider these things, guys. I just wouldn't be able to do it. There was one particular suggestion, recommendation, that um, on the floor of the assembly, one of the presbyters brought a a motion that we change the language to improve it, and it did improve, but then a, a later motion was brought to expunge all of that, and it actually made the original a recommendation even worse than it was originally, and that was kind of frustrating. I know that sounds very convoluted, but if you've never been to a general assembly, well, all I can say is um, you don't know what you're missing. But uh, yeah, I'm not. I, I don't like the recommendations, and I'm sad that there are sessions that are going to be spending a lot of time maybe walking through some of that stuff, and and I just don't think it's very helpful. Can you give us an example? Um, so it wants churches to to think through considering how to create a position of a um, non-ordained, commissioned worker. Well, I, I just What is ordination if it isn't commissioned? Exactly. I, I, I mean, basically what that recommendation does, and of course they would deny this, but and I know that members of the committee are not intending to do this, but essentially what that's doing is it's creating another office of ministry. If they really think that having a commissioning service is going to be seen really different as having an ordination service, well, they're, then they're just being naive. Now, let me say this. At the church where I serve, we will commission some missionaries. We'll pray for them in a service and you know, pray that the Lord will bless them. We'll call that commissioning. Nobody in my church is going to confuse that with ordination. However, if I pastor a church that wants to see us beginning to ordain women as officers, I'm going to do ordination and commissioning on the same Sunday in the same service, and it's going to be made, and the difference is going to be negligible at best, and it's naive to think it would be done any other way than that. We know that that's what's going to happen. It's going to create confusion. It's either going to make another office of the church, or it's going to um, undermine ordination. It's going to do one of those two things, and I'm sad that a pastoral letter, so to speak, you know, a recommendation is sent to all of our churches encouraging them to uh, to consider that. Interesting. Yeah. I want to go back to, you alluded earlier to the email that was leaked. Yes. Uh, I don't want to talk necessarily about the details of that email, but mm-hmm. what it signifies culturally about the PCA. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the OPC, in case you hadn't noticed. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I'm I'm not a big drum beater for the OPC. It happens to be where the Lord has placed me, so I'm happy to work there. Yeah. One of the things that I like about the OPC is that we have a culture where factions and caucusing anathema. Right. One of the things that interests me 
about the PCA and I think should be a worrying thing for those in the PCA is that you have a culture where you have these cross currents of caused by factions and organized groups. Mm -hmm. And I'm not making a left or right point here. Uh, I'm making a point about the organization of pressure groups, lobby groups within a denomination Mm -hmm. that operate as self-conscious, intentional entities or agencies. I think that bodes bad for the future of a denomination. I, I think to some extent, the OPC is profoundly shaped by the experiences of Machen in the 20s and 30s, where Machen was stitched up by those who, who were not honorable and did not right. honor process. And so, while the OPC, from the outsider's perspective, often has a reputation of being a sort of very litigious denomination, mm. I think, looked at from the inside, it seems right. to me to be more procedural than litigious. That yeah. what we get hung up on is minutiae procedure, because... Procedure is the only thing that protects the innocent right. and also protects the integrity of a denomination. I don't know what you think about that, but it's worrying to me that you know this national partnership, set aside their progressive commitments or right. whatever, the fact that you have a group that organizes like that, right. I think that is- And they're even named. That is, yes. non-presby- that is non, if not anti-Presbyterian. I agree. And very, very worrying because, frankly, in Presbyterian polity, you have the context for raising your concerns and making your case. We call them sessions, presbyteries, general assemblies, and on occasional more regional synods. But we have established biblical ecclesiastical Mm -hmm. contexts for making our case, pursuing our policies. As soon as you've got these extra ecclesiastical entities operating within the church, I think you've got a problem. Whether yeah. they're right or left, I think you've got a problem. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, w- several years back, I don't know if it's been about five years or so ago, at least a year before I came into the PCA, if not two years or so, Carl mentioned the National Partnership. There was a group of progressives, and, and I'm, not, I'm not coming up with a term to call them progressives, a very, very well-known and respected man within our denomination who identifies with them, has called them progressives okay so i'm not i'm not trying to, to do this pejoratively i'm just using well, i think it's a fairer term than liberal which i have absolutely heard used, and i don't think these people yep. are liberals yep. they are progressive there's a few that are liberals but for the most part these are these are just more progressive guys a lot of the guys i've met i would not call liberals but you know they have their own name as amy <laughs> you know it's not like you know, it's not like they're loosely affiliated when you name yourself yeah when you name your organization there's like a mission going on exactly there. they have something that's been referred to by one of their own, as their, quote, political arm. They organize voting. They talk about us and them. They talk about getting our people on the committees. And they send out these organizing emails. They meet. They meet for fellowship. They meet for planning. And when they get to the General Assembly, they are well organized and and running like a machine. What they've tried to do is say, all we are just brothers who are like-minded and, we, and you know, everybody has that. No, no, no. Um, I... I fellowship with like-minded brothers in the PCA. We don't have a name. <laughs> we don't have a membership. We don't have a political you arm. You thought that it was PCA. <laughs> exactly. We don't have a political. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's called the Presbyterian Church in America, and it's called the Blue Ridge Presbytery, mm-hmm. and it's called the session in my local church. Exactly. And so any attempt for them to say, oh, well, we're just doing what everybody else in the PCA does. No, they're not. It is different. And and I know firsthand that it's different. So that is concerning. And that was one of the things, you know, some of the wording from this particular email that went out talking about um, how to vote. We've got these crucial votes 
coming up and uh, it talks about our willingness to fight and vote until the fabric of the PCA better reflects what we hope. You see, that's takeover language. Exactly. That is takeover. That is exactly what it is. He goes on, our fellowship, capital F, our fellowship has Mm, grown from a test group of sorts to a place where, if united, we can win every vote. Now, this is divisive. It is not Presbyterian. It is not gracious and loving as they declare themselves to be. And this is going to get me more trashing on social media, but that's fine. I've blocked most of it anyway. But that's what I just read you. It's their language that they are using. Well, let me say this, because you couldn't say it because you'd be vulnerable to a charge in your denomination. That sounds to me like language which is incompatible with fulfilling your vows Mm. as an office bearer in the PCA. That is not peace and unity of the church language. I certainly wouldn't feel free to do that kind of thing given the vows I've taken, I, 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 would, I wouldn't feel free doing that. So it's, it's troubling. And some of us have, you know, obviously when that email went public back in April, it made quite the strong waves within the denomination. And I had hoped after that email went public that there would be some on that side of things who be reflective and say, hmm, you know what, maybe, gosh, now just seeing it in print like there, wow, that's, maybe that's not appropriate. But there's no evidence that any of that soul-searching went on, unfortunately. And um, so, you know, I, I went into General Assembly, you know, with that kind of on my back, just thinking through that, that email and, and having read others in the run-up to that that were in, getting increasingly like that, which just discouraged me because I, I thought, wow, you know, that's not the way Presbyterianism is supposed to be. So that all said, even despite the... Um, the very disciplined organization that they've developed to get votes through in general assembly. PCA laity is still overwhelmingly conservative. GA represents, although we vote on important things, GA is not fully representative of what is happening in and through the PCA as as a denomination. Well, I I would say the laity would expect more of a transparency than, than an email like that. Yeah. I heard from a lot of lay people who know how to email me and that kind of thing. When that email went public, they could not believe that was going on in the PCA. They just, they're lay people who, who have taken membership courses. They know enough about our polity that when they read, you don't expect that kind of behavior. They thought that was completely incompatible with Presbyterianism. Well, it's like judge Paul Pressler in the Southern Baptist convention Mm -hmm. in the sixties. Yeah. Finding the Sunday school material. Right. And, you know, just asking the question, well, where, where's this being written? Oh, it's being written by seminary professors. Right. And then the whole lid gets blown off. Exactly. The, the SBC problems. But I think you're, you're right. The laity, for most people in the laity, the local church is their church. Right. Denominational concerns are far away and few between. Right. So it doesn't surprise me that when they find out what their money is funding, mm-hmm. they might be a little disillusioned. Right. And I would just encourage my fellow PCA pastors out there who are discouraged by some reading of the, your blog post. by reading me <laughs> and listening to me, <laughs> um, but who who have been discouraged over recent years about the broadening of the PCA 
to the extent that it resembles less confessional Presbyterianism and more broad evangelicalism, it is not time to leave. It is really not time to leave. As Carl said in a conversation we were having earlier, this is not 1936 PCUSA. It is not time to leave. I, I am hopeful that as more and more of the laity understand some of these things, it's going to be communicated. One of the interesting things that happened, there was a discussion of the entire committee of the Women's Study Committee, and there were some really good things said. And Kathy Keller made it an extremely definitive statement that I'm glad she said, and I hope that she was heard. She said actually several times how thoroughly opposed she was to women exercising spiritual authority over men. And she said, if you are in the PCA and you believe that women need to occupy positions of authority over men or need to be ordained as elders, you are in the wrong denomination, she said. You're in the wrong denomination, and you need to find another denomination. I, I mean, I, I was not the OPC. I the OPC. <laughs> um, and anyway, so so here's she. Obviously, you know, people know where where Kathy's coming from. She's in favor of ordaining women as deacons because she does not believe that ordination is authoritative. Now, that's a good conversation to have. The study committee report on ordination made clear that it actually is an authoritative position or an authoritative act. That said. She was very, very clear on that. Now, what I disagreed with her about was that she said there's no way, no possible way that ordaining women as deacons will ever morph into a push to ordain them as elders. She said that slippery slope argument can't work because it's two different things. Well, it stunned me how firm she was in the conviction that one could never slide into the other because obviously it can't. It would yeah, obviously it's, it's, be not, used. it's not a necessary slide. It's not because, a necessary slide. For example, slide. the RPCNA. Right. In, ordain women as deacons, right. but they're very, very strict exactly. on the so, so, of men only to elders. Right. And, and I would say it is not necessary. But for those within the PCA yeah. who want to see us change, even what we say about elders, and I know that we have some, that would be seen as a connection. And then let me also say this, that there are some really good conservative churches and denominations, like RPCNA, and like a church like Capitol Hill Baptist Church that has women deacons. But the difference is, is that if the PCA were to do that, then we would need to change some things about how deacons function. Because in the PCA, deacons do have a leadership role. The work that they are given in the book of church order in the PCA, they do function with a high level of authority. Now, they function under the session in that sense, but they are given quite a bit of authority, which would make it different, for instance, in how deacons function at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, which would make having women deacons no conflict at all there. But if we were to begin ordaining women as deacons, we would really need to change the way deacons function in the PCA. We'd have to change their job description, so to speak. If we were going to say what Kathy Keller says, Mm. which is they should not have authority over men, because at least in PCA church, deacons operate with authority. One thing I picked up on, on the social media discussions regarding the women's roles is a lot of language about women being able to have some sort what positions she mm-hmm. can have in worship. Yeah, yeah. And it really, in my mind, thought, well, I really think we need to have better teaching on the lay person's role in worship because mm-hmm. we do have a role in worship. I mean, we're receivers in a big way, but we're also 
singing to one another. We're responding to the liturgy. Yep. There's teaching going on and singing. Mm-hmm. Listening is to be active as well. Listening Absolutely. is an active it says, thing to Hear do. Hear, Israel, the Lord your God is one. Right. Here, he's calling him mm-hmm. to an action, an activity. Right. So it seems like the only way that people think that they're actually participating in worship is by being behind mm-hmm. a pulpit. Such a good point. I can tell you, any preacher who has any sensitivity as to what he's doing up there understderstands full well that the congregation is very much a part of what Could is going on. Could you imagine if we were disengaged the entire preaching. time? Absolutely. Todd doesn't, have, Todd doesn't have to imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I, I just thought this is an opportunity to mm-hmm. really teach well mm-hmm. the role that lay people have mm-hmm. in worship. Yeah. Betcha. Yeah. I think in some ways, though, that, that's perhaps what we face is, I think Presbyterianism in America has done a good job over against evangelicalism of emphasizing the importance and the uniqueness of the ordained office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The problem is that sooner or later that morphs into people thinking if they're not ordained, right. they're not doing anything worthwhile. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And one of the results of that is a pass- mm-hmm. you know, they come to think of worship as passive because right. they're not up front. Right. So I think it's, a, it's go- always going to be a risk in Presbyterianism mm-hmm. that that will provide then a context for, ironically, pushing for the devaluation of the ordained office. Well, and I think to look at the church as the household of God, Mm. so whether we're participating in the the formal worship service or all the other things that we do together, um, there's a household working together there. And in our personal households, we know that every member is very important and very valued and active. So I think that that's another good teaching that we could think think about teaching that could come out of this too. Indeed. All right, well, I think we solved all the world's problems there with Presbytery. It seems like there was a lot of talk about the the PCA General Assembly. We just had a General Assembly, Carl. The OPC met. Well, um, that was really exciting. Yeah, I didn't realize it had happened until I had a prayer request. <laughs> and giving thanks a little boring. For sometimes, it's, sometimes it's good to, to be boring, and, yeah. and we're proud Indeed. of that Indeed. in the OPC. I, so. I would actually, I'm looking forward to a boring general assembly one day. <laughs> well, maybe one day, Todd. One day. Maybe yeah. one day. Well, thanks for listening. Um, we have a free resource we want to give. Uh, you can enter to win by Guy Waters called How Jesus Runs the Church. We think that that would be a good resource for you to win after a conversation such as this. And please do go visit our website over at mortificationofspin.org. Um, you can leave a donation there for us. You can go to iTunes and Leave a review, a five-star review, Positive as, as Carl says. You can only leave five-star You can only leave accept anything less. No. five-star reviews. Like if you try a four or something, it buzzes, and then it'll shock your finger. Uh-huh. Yeah. So be careful with that. And so thanks for listening, and until next time, we'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation.
And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about the whole idea of kissing, dating, goodbye promotes an over-sexualization on the church's part, really, of men and women, young men and women. A guy should, should be able to take a girl out for a burger without it being a proposal of marriage. The use of the J word there, while it makes my skin crawl, is <laughs> it's most certainly uh, something that's significant in modern culture. You know, join him on his journey. That's going to carry you along. Yeah, you but, become part of the story then, yeah. too. You know, it's your journey as well. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. Mortification of Spin.